0: Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We have uh, uh, another study in the book of Romans. We're in a series, not working through the book consecutively, but taking up a number of topics in which, at the time of the Reformation, the uh, church was blessed with new gospel clarity, being able to see with uh, new thankfulness and uh, new joy these uh, truths Long buried in a penitential system and in a clouded theology. We're going to be considering the matter of assurance and uh, looking together at the end of chapter 7. If you have a Bible I'd like to read to you, I'll start in verse 18 of chapter 7, and then we'll read into Romans 8. From Romans 7, picking up in the middle of the paragraph at verse 18. The apostle writes, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we find ourselves on both sides of this passage the remaining corruptions by which we are able to cry out with the apostle that there is nothing of an unmixed good in us that we are in so many ways those very sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save and yet rejoicing that there is no condemnation to those who are in him who have been set free by the spirit that we might be able being set free from the law of sin and death to rejoice in the hope of the children of God. And we pray that you would settle our hearts in this passage and through your spirit, for Christ's sake. Amen. Martin Luther once famously said that the heart of religion lies in personal pronouns. The heart of religion lies in its personal pronouns. That is to say, the life and the power of Christianity is ours when we can say, The Lord is my shepherd. I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks on me. I know that my Redeemer lives, and so forth. This confidence, this assurance of God's love and our salvation has everything to do with the quality, power, and progress of our Christian lives. We find that, practically speaking, we are like Bunyan's pilgrim who can't make any decent progress on his journey until he has gone to find that role that was once in his bosom. We may truly be Christians, but we do not have the power and joy of our Christianity without this confidence and assurance. It is the teaching of the whole Bible that Christians are to know that God loves them. And how awful it would be for a human father if a child of his doubted his love. I mean, if one of my daughters said, Daddy, I just don't know that you love me. I would be upset and disturbed, and it can't be right, likewise, for us to kneel down day after day and pray, Our Father in heaven, if you really are my Father, which I doubt. It can't be right for us to come here week after week to rejoice in the Lord, and all the while a dark suspicion is haunting us that we are never, we've never been born children of God. And so, you see, this matter of assurance has a great deal of practical import for our Christian lives. One time, the English poet William Wordsworth gave a definition of poetry like this. He said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Whether that's a fair description of poetry, I can't say, but those words do describe something about our Christian lives, our witness, our worship, our prayers, our whole service to God depends in so many ways upon the depth and power and certainty of our affections. And this needs to be driven, all these things need to be driven by the conviction that God has loved us. Assurance of our salvation comes with a sense of God's love treasured in the soul, the joy of our salvation, and the expectation of everlasting life. As Paul says, "What behold what manner of love that, that, that we should be called children of God. This wonder, this power is to be at the root of so many things in our Christian experience. And so it is that Bishop Hopkins in the old days called... Assurance, quote, I'm sorry, he wrote, quote, grace with assurance is no less than heaven let down into the soul. So we have this uh, we have this uh, high ideal set forth in the scripture that we should be rejoicing in our God and confident in his salvation, and this should drive us forward in, in every way, and yet. I also know that every believer, at least every believer that I have met, has experienced some time or season or struggle in this matter of assurance. We long to have what we've been speaking about, but we find that from time to time, at least, it eludes us, and some find a great struggle for many years, if not for their whole life in these matter, more or less. We certainly expected to have so much more progress in our Christian faith. We are understandably downcast, if not actually discouraged, when we consider the failings and the weaknesses of our heart. We wonder if the Lord is with us. We think, are we even born again? Perhaps we think this is just not the way things are not to be are to be for the children of God. And this passage tonight you you you, you realize brings together both sides of this experience. This passage brings them together and helps to resolve it, I think, painting a picture of the Christian that is, on the one hand, struggling, uh, striving, however unsuccessfully, with remaining sin and corruption. Um, the, The evil that is present cannot be shaken, and there is a war going on in the mind. So that he calls himself a wretched man, um, calls his flesh "the body of death." This is his evaluation of, one of the, well, this is the evaluation of one of the most saintly men that ever lived. And so if he could say these things, well, you and I are in far worse shape. All right. Meanwhile, he turns the corner in, in Romans eight to triumph in the gospel that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and begins to unfold the work of the Holy Spirit, who not only continues to lead us forth and guide us in our life, but also then, he, he says later in the chapter, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, by whom we are able to cry, Abba, Father, and assure us that God is for us and who can be against us. And so we find this passage holds together these difficulties and paints a picture of a Christian life that balances our sinfulness and our assurance. That'll be our study for this evening. And I I want to say just by way of introduction, as we are trying to make reference to how this became very important and very clear in the minds of people during the Reformation that uh, this was a tremendous discovery for Luther when he most needed it. Luther had been taught that we are saved by our righteousness, which God, by grace, works in us through the sacraments and strengthens more and more. Okay, but Luther then applied himself to these means more than anyone else in his day, to righteousness, confession, penance, vigils, and fastings, and every other means he could muster in order that he might have some relief of conscience. For Luther, the assurance of salvation was not some exercise in scholastic theology. It was a life-and-death struggle. His extremely tender conscience could not bear the weight of God's impending judgment. He had this constant sense of foreboding, of dread and despair, uh, which he called in the German Anfektung. We saw in a previous study that this, in this anxiety-ridden state, Luther at last found in these pages of the book of Romans that the mercy of God was that he was both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, that though the wages of sin is death, the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that though uh, that uh, the righteousness of God apart from law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, this, I say, was just a revolution for Luther. It, it, it was the very gates of paradise that he beheld when he understood this. And he said, I just walked through them, and not only him, but thousands and thousands more followed who could begin now to read the Bible in their own language and found that under the burden of such dread and death that it, 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 was, it was like life and light itself. It was like people were snatched from the very jaws of hell. And so Luther wrote later that it's not understanding or reading or speculation, but living, nay, rather, dying and being damned that make a theologian. (laughs) That is to say, he interacted with these things at the the most emotional, at the most visceral level. And so at last Luther understood that we were sinners and saints, or as he put it in Latin, simil justus et peccator, that is to say, at one and the same time, just, righteous, and sinners. He described this also, we saw, in a variety of ways. In chapter 5 and 6, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, while we were enemies, while we were without strength, that he died to reconcile us to God. And so it is that uh, uh, we we find this tension now that comes back to us in chapters 7 and 8. In chapter 7, we find, indeed, the sins and the struggles which still beset every child of God, the peccator side, that uh, we we still experience what Luther knew was the remaining corruption in him, that so dejected him for so long. But then in chapter 8, the triumph of assurance and joy, that nevertheless, it is those people like us, those who have this body of death, the wretched people that we are, that Christ Jesus has come to save. And that these things are not contrary to one another, but that the very anguish and despair that our sin drives us to make the platform for our joy and our triumph and victory in Jesus. So let's consider the passage today. I'm spending more time in chapter 7, a little less time in chapter 8, which I think we'll come back to perhaps next time. But I'd like to be able to show you together how these things work together for our assurance. We don't have to live the Christian life very long before we grow discouraged by our lack of progress. And we wonder, why isn't God doing more giving us more holiness, giving us more help than he does. I mean, God certainly has made a great change, and we clearly can confess that uh, the Lord has been merciful to us. Yes, But why is there still so much remaining corruption? Why is the strength of that corruption so great? Why must we experience so much repeated failure, even now that we're genuinely committed to Jesus Christ and earnestly seeking to live a life to the glory of God? Why does the Lord permit the dregs of our sinfulness to continue to corrupt our mind and word and life? I mean, If he has taken away sin's guilt so completely and all at once justified by faith, why has he been so slow in sanctification? Why has he left so much corruption in us? After all, we think it would be so much easier for us to advance the gospel or convince the world that Christ is the risen Lord uh, if we lived at a much higher level of spiritual life and faithfulness and purity? No. I mean, wouldn't the kingdom itself benefit from having holier people? Wouldn't it just seem right that God's people would all live at a moral level so much obviously higher than others in love and truth and purity that the gospel would seem almost irresistible? And it would be perfectly obvious that the followers of Christ were transformed better by far. Uh, I say, maybe it's just me that have, have these thoughts sometimes. But here it is, as the godly Paul himself confesses, that we are nevertheless living our lives beset by a daily desire for sin and an experience of weakness in the face of temptation with such remaining corruption that we must say wretched people that we are. And this naturally leads us to say, at least from time to time, at least, at least the most tender among us know this, this regular struggle. Are we Christians at all? It is the experience, I say, of every Christian that I know of and every uh, 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 spiritual biography, practically, that I have read that um, we remain in this state of uh, trial and of struggle that often hinders and, and uh, uh, causes our uh, doubts to overflow. Why, we say, O oh Lord, why have you left us in this state? I'd like to give you at least, uh, actually, four reasons from this passage this evening why God has done so to show you how these very things, which often steal our confidence and assurance away, are the things which are the platform for our confidence and joy. The first reason that we have made so little progress, the first reason I'd like to tell you that God has left us in such a state, is to humble us, to humble us. Wretched man that I am, says the apostle. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul humbly confesses in this passage that in him, that is in this flesh, nothing good dwells. And so this inner sense of wretchedness that that he struggles with clearly, I hope you see, is nevertheless a very safe and a very healthy thing in the Christian life. For though our still great and powerful sin remains, through this, God humbles us in a way that nothing else so effectively and powerfully could. And so if gospel humility is going to be the foundation of everything else in a Christian's life, this is no small gift If it is sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, it is good for us to have constantly upon our conscience and in our mind that there is a wretchedness that Paul describes. This is, I say, essential to a happy and fruitful Christian life. The scripture is always teaching us here, and then again in chapter 12 and many other places, that we must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, that He said earlier several times in the previous pages that boasting is excluded. Pride is the great enemy of our souls. And you'll remember that when Paul turns the corner in chapter 12 and begins applying these truths, I beseech you therefore, brethren, the first matter that he takes up is this matter of humility. I say through the grace given to me, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Well, What a world of evil we have in the church because of our pride that expresses itself toward others. How unloving and unkind and uncaring that sin of pride makes us. This is the chief concern in practically every passage where the apostle writes about the use of spiritual gifts or about the unity of the church Or I could give you lots of other examples, but perhaps nothing would so much promote unity in this body or the beauty or usefulness or happiness of our fellowship and a loving spirit on the part of everyone else than for all of us keenly to feel the humility that Paul expresses in this passage. And so you see, more than anything else, it is our sin that gives us this low, uh, realistic view of ourselves before God and man that we need to live our life. Well, when we compare ourselves with ourselves, Paul writes elsewhere, we are not wise. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave this illustration of uh, comparing the brightness of a 100-watt bulb versus a 60-watt bulb versus a 40-watt bulb. I can't use this illustration much longer now because, of course, we're not working in watts for light bulbs anymore, but some of you know what I mean. There's a difference between how much light each of those bulbs produces. And, well, when we compare them to each other, we can speak of uh, some substantial brightness in one versus the other. But he says you hold them up to the sun, and any difference in the light of those bulbs is completely annihilated and even hard to fathom. There is no difference to speak of. Next to the sun, a 40-watt bulb and a 100-watt bulb are casting practically the same shadow. And this is what is true in the spiritual realm. Our sin reminds us that we are not God. It is he who is our Savior, and this brings us before his holiness. So just as surely as we Christians must be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, or Christ is my Savior, we must also first be able to say, wretched man, that I am. It is important for the sake of humility. Second, of course, in the passage, to exalt Christ, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is sin that prevents us from taking Christ for granted and continues to keep him magnificent in our view. Jesus himself said, of course, when that uh, sinful woman came, uh, I tell you that he who has forgiven much, the same loves much. And... It is, uh, it is this sin that teaches us to value the love of God, which has been given to unworthy, undeserving people. He has poured this love into our hearts, love for the unlovable. It is sin that reminds us how great God's love must be, that it is willing to bear with us every day in such grace If you want to know why Paul was so captivated by the love of Christ and wished for nothing so much as to make his life an honor to Christ, it's because Paul was a man who especially felt the depth of his sin and the greatness of his rescue. If Amazing Grace had not saved a wretch like Paul, what would have happened? And if God had not saved a wretch like you and me, well, his love would never thrill us. Christ's redemption would never be wonderful. it would never never thrill us as it ought to thrill us. So maybe it never occurred to you, but the next time you sin inexcusably for the umpteenth time in some particular way, realize once again just how much the Lord loves you. The one who's been forgiven much, the same loves much. And for a good man, one would even perhaps dare to die. But God commends his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the analysis of Alexander White. If you had both been called and justified and adopted and sanctified wholly and all at once, you would never have known, you would never have believed what an inveterate and hopeless and unparalleled sinner you are, nor what a glorious Savior you have got in the Son of God. No, it is not your first pardon that gives God his great name in you, It is his every day and every hour pardon of your sins. Sins that are past all name and past all belief. So you understand, it is those sins that you commit now as a believer that show you just how deep the love of God must be. It's the forgiveness he continues to extend to you, over and over again, in defiance of the fact that you continue to abuse love and grace that proves to your proud, self satisfied heart that He is a great Savior. It is your continued sinning that gives Christ his name and honor in your heart, he says. And keeping a heavy sense is the way that we would continue to have that great sense of the depth of grace, that where sin is abounded, grace has much more abounded after discussing the power of remaining sin, Paul asks, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And it's with this triumph, this cry of relief, I thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that this glory, as Newton put it here, this glory shines far more in redeeming a sinner like you and me than in preserving a thousand angels. So you keep that wretchedness of your remaining sin in sight, that humbles you, point one, and then you too will be able to exalt in Christ like this. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remaining sin retains power not only to humble us, but also to exalt Christ. Third, it's also given to train us in our Christian warfare. To train us in our Christian warfare, Paul explains in verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see this other w- law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And in other words, uh, which I skipped earlier, he he writes of the struggle, this warfare that it's, that's going on within him. Now, when we say, oh, we just wish we didn't have this much remaining corruption, how much more assurance we would have, how much more pleasant our Christian lives would be. What we mean is, We just wish we didn't have to fight so much. We didn't have to watch and pray so much, to be careful so much about our Christian lives, to resist the devil so much. Perhaps you never realized it or stopped to think about it, but we see Christ our Savior waging war against the devil's temptations and the world system and all these things page after page, contending with adversaries, and we, I think, just naturally shrink back from the fight. Our battle within, though, is what primarily trains our hands for war in the battle without. Without learning to fight against the flesh, we will have little success against the world or the devil. And so this daily contest within us, with this intractable, relentless, never-sleeping, unforgiving enemy, the flesh, from our passage, uh, is what teaches us that we are soldiers of Christ and that this holy warfare must be waged and waged to the end, to the death. The battle that rages within teaches us that we must go out to war every day, putting on the full armor of God, wielding the weapons that the Spirit himself supplies to us that we might advance from victory to victory in the desperate warfare that has overspread the world. So sin remains to train our hands for war, to exalt Christ, to humble us. But fourth and finally tonight, it remains in such strength to teach us to long for our final deliverance. Who will deliver me? Paul asks. He thanks God for the deliverance that will be his in Christ Jesus. Paul considers his current state and uh, he realizes that it is, it is one of weariness, uh, of, uh, of warfare, um, one of struggle, and he thanks God for what is going to happen in chapter 8, the other side of this equation here, verses 21 through 25 especially, that not only we, but the whole creation groans and uh, we'll be delivered from bondage to corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, and so forth. His sins sent him longing for heaven and for victory and for the life to come, and it made him a heavenly-minded man. Paul had his advantages, to be sure. But his sense of sin made him groan inwardly for the day in which glory would at last be revealed, when the body of death would forever be done away with, when he would enter the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, we long for heaven, no doubt. We, We long for the presence of Christ and the reunion with other believers who have gone before. Perhaps we just have aches and pains and We have the sins of other people we must endure, and those are all fine. This passage reminds us that there is nothing that should so wonderfully produce a longing for heaven in a believer's heart than this deep sense of relief from our wretchedness and the glory that is soon to be revealed in us, the glorious liberty of the children of God, from bondage of corruption to glorious liberty. And... Here we have set before us the, uh, the joys and the fulfillments of heaven. Well, God obviously could have swept the power of sin away at once if he were so pleased. But these are some reasons from the passage why God has ordered each one of us to have a slow and often painful process in putting to death our sins, these humble us, though they exalt Christ, they train us for war, they teach us to long for the life to come and not to have our home in this world. And if our sins did that for us every day, then we too would say, like John Fox, that our sins have, in a way, done more good for us than our graces. Or as James Fraser Bray said, I find advantages of my sins. Or Rutherford A sense of sin is a close friend to a spiritual man. And so, do not ever ignore, avoid, cover over, or allow yourself to forget. Shift the blame. Minimize the power of remaining and raging sin in your heart and life. You may even have to pray for a deeper sense of it like the Apostle had. But to make a clean breast of it to yourself and then to God every day, to look at it and to take stock of it. John Newton, whom I mentioned earlier, the man who knew about God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like him, said it this way, in one sense, our sinfulness is excellently suited to answer God's eternal purpose. If we were not vile and worthless, beyond all expression, The exceeding riches of his grace would not have been so gloriously displayed in us. His glory shines far more in redeeming one sinner like you and me than in preserving and upholding a thousand angels like Gabriel and Michael themselves. And may the magnificent good of that truth be believed, embraced, and felt in the heart. And therefore, you see, he is able to turn from a realistic assessment of his own weakness, shame, and struggle to the triumph of the Christian experience in chapter 8, rejoicing and giving thanks that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that none of the things that he has mentioned have in any way dimmed his salvation, but made it all the more plain and precious, that it is only in Christ Jesus that we have redemption. Going on to say that this sense of God's love and salvation kept upon the soul becomes a powerful motivation to holiness, to prayer, to hope in the midst of the troubles of life. And he goes through the chapter, drawing these things to a conclusion in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we can think, if, if all those things did not hinder us, if even these things cannot touch us, what can harm us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, dear friends, this is not a safe universe for anyone else in the world besides the children of God. For the unbeliever, it is a highly dangerous and uncertain universe that can and does go against you at any time. But for the believer, we know that all this remaining corruption, that all this disappointment and often discouragement in our lives cannot rob us of peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit, that nothing is going to stand in God's way to redeem us. It was while we had been enemies, when we had no thoughts of God, that he saved us, and will he now forget us? God is able to work all these things for good. And so we can say, even in this dark world, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. If he's given his son for me, then he will withhold nothing for my blessing. If he is my father, then he will seek only to do me good. He is a father who gave his son for me, the son of his love, his eternal son. And therefore we can be nothing that he will withhold from us, his dear children. So, I conclude by saying, if you can believe that God has given his son for you, it is not very hard to convince you that the rest of life is firmly in his loving hands. What will he keep back? You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live like God might abandon you or give you more than you can bear. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The more that we look at our own life and struggles and discouragements, the more that we are naturally discouraged. But when we look at his mercy and his redemption, we are able to have every confidence. Rabbi Duncan uh, wrote, Let us seek to have well-grounded marks of saintship, yes. But when the push comes, nothing but imputed righteousness will stand the day. Okay, yeah. Let us be holy people, absolutely. But we will never, at the end of the day, have any joy, have any assurance. Nothing less than imputed righteousness will stand. It is there we began. It is there we must end, with God as a sin-forgiving God, through the obedience unto death of his only begotten Son, and being shut up and driven back to that. This will not hinder holiness, but promote it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so, dear friends, assurance is not simply a matter of being sure for the right reasons that you are saved. It is, you see, a matter of living in the active confidence of God's love, of the joy of forgiveness, of the near approach of the glories of heaven, and above all, being ravished by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the viewpoint of our confession of faith. It is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duty of obedience, the proper fruits of assurance. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, may these good fruits be ours and in abundance. We know that we often are discouraged, dispirited, and we find ourselves uh, not only downcast, but um, hindered from going on in our joy. We find that we have not made a good use even of our remaining corruptions, much less of our divine graces. We pray that you would forgive us and that through the things we consider this evening, that these things might again drive us to Christ and make us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wretched people that we are, deliver us from this body of death